you have to stay in business. And you not only have to stay in business, you have to be profitable. Otherwise, you lose your capacity to help. Welcome to Branding Over One, an exclusive podcast by Branding Mag. I'm Martin Shearer, and I'm super excited to be sharing some great conversations with some of our personal branding heroes. And with us here today, we have David Acker, the godfather of modern branding, vice chairman of Profit, and the creator of the Acker model, probably the most well-known branding model out there. I actually have here on my desk two books, Brand Portfolio Strategy and Lidorasco da Marca, Brand Leadership. I read it in Spanish at that time. The last book, David co-authored with Eric Joachim Staler. These books got me inspired to get into branding in the first place. So it's an honor indeed to have you on our show. So welcome, everybody, and welcome, David Acker. Now, David Acker, I'm so happy to have you on the show. As mentioned, I grew up with branding, and these are the things that got me really into branding. And it was the first time that I came into a world where branding was structured, where it was not just words here and there and communication there, but somebody actually sat down and structured how does branding work? And what is what can we build a model about this? And apparently that was successful, but since then they call you the godfather of modern branding. And you're also the vice chairman of Profit and the creator of the, the Acker model, which is probably the best model out there or at least the most well-known, let's put it that way. So, uh, Dave, I'm happy to have you here. As the listeners know from the show, we only invite our personal heroes. This is something that we do as a personal passion and hobby. So I'm happy I can ask all the questions that I wanted to ask for a long time. So first, an easy question. So how has branding changed over all these years? Well, branding has gone through a, uh, s- several changes. The uh, really notable one happened in the late 80s, early 90s, uh, almost 30 years ago, when the Procter & Gamble model of, of you manage for really short-term sales and, and you use things like promotions and advertising was replaced with a brand equity model. And, and uh, that changed what branding was, it changed from tactical to strategic. It changed who did branding. Now that branding uh, was done by people in the C-suite and, and CMOs and, and so on, it wasn't done by lower level advertising people. And third, it, it changed how brand uh, brands were measured. It wasn't no longer just short-term sales. And so uh, that was a real notable thing. And here lately, the digital t- uh, revolution has really altered branding. It has uh, made innovation uh, much faster than it was before. And uh, it has uh, changed how hard it is to get heard in, in telling your audience about your brands. And uh, it's elevated the whole idea of a social purpose as well, because people are a little frustrated with the mechanical world that digital has brought. That's fascinating. We've also seen several reports out, and I must say, I'm not totally objective on this. I've been also writing this report, how society is changing and how, let's say, 
consumers, in this case, perhaps even citizens, if you want to call them, look differently at society, at governments, and also at corporations. And you've also started writing much more. I've seen you publish much more on that. Uh, can you say a little bit more about this last step that you mentioned? Yeah, I think in, in this digital era, uh, people are, uh, and in the pandemic era, really, the people are, are searching for meaning in their lives. They're uh, getting dissatisfied with jobs that doesn't, don't deliver professional meaning and purpose. And so as a result, the, uh, the long-term trend toward companies having a higher purpose has accelerated. And now it's really almost an imperative with respect to having good employees and finding them, to having a, a good customer base, having investors even, and uh, you know, being able to address real society problems. There's a big upswing in that, and that's becoming more important, and it's affecting branding because it's through brands that we have to tell the story about our values and our social programs and our environmental efforts. And so how could you be a bit more specific? How would that affect branding? Can you give some examples? Well, I, of, uh, my, mm -hmm. my new, new book, which should be out in the fall, is, is entitled The Future of Purpose-Driven Branding. Fascinating. And uh, what, what that says is that, first of all, you need a purpose. It doesn't have to be that specific, but it has to enable you to do things like create social or environmental programs. And the, uh, the second thing is that you need to have signature brands that tell a story of what you're doing. Mm. And uh, because otherwise it's so fragmented and diffuse that it's, it's, it's hard to have anybody uh, appreciate what you are doing. And third, you have to use marketing and branding techniques to build up those signature brands. And finally, you have to use those signature brands to help the, uh, some kind of business. Because if you can do that, a business will be more likely to commit to uh, helping you over the years and also give you access to assets and skills and knowledge that they have. To make it a bit more concrete, can you give a few examples of, let's say, this uh, signature branding or this uh, signature programs, as you call them? If you take, for example, the uh, Lifebuoy bar soap brand that's, uh, that's the, sort of the number one brand outside the United States, it, uh, in India, it developed a program, Help a Child Reach Five, to, uh, because uh, two million ch children die each year before the age of five. And if they would have a really good hand-washing program, that could be reduced because it's mostly waterborne illnesses that's causing it. So they developed a program and they gave it a brand name. Well, actually, the Unilever has been, or Life Boy, Unilever brand has been asking people to wash their hands for 120 years since they started. But uh, about eight years ago, they realized that they could do better with that program. And they mm. completely expanded and and added features to the program, and they gave it a brand name, Help a Child Reach Five. And they put that uh, new effort into three villages in India, and then they made a three-minute video of each of the villages focusing on, in on a mother that was influenced by the program. They got 44 million views 
for those three programs. 44 million views, and this is bar soap. You couldn't possibly buy that kind of <laughs> exposure by talking about your bar soap. So can these success stories be extrapolated to, let's say, to all brands or to all categories? Or is it in some categories and with some brands easier than with others? Well, I, I think it, yeah, it can be expanded to all brands, but it'll take different forms. I mean, some social programs are built into the offering, like Tesla saves energy by uh, making an electric car. Patagonia makes their clothes in such a way they save a lot of water, they save a lot of materials. And so in those, in those cases, a, the social or environmental program is built into their offering. But uh, a lot of the green uh, products and a lot of the organic foods are in that category. But then you have, uh, at the other extreme, you have somebody that's making it, it mayonnaise, like you mentioned, or uh, <laughs> something that it really doesn't lend itself to, uh, to a very visible, impressive program. And I, I talk about uh, Avon Cosmetics, the door-to-door -door cosmetic company who <laughs> who created the walk for breast cancer that was very successful raised almost two-thirds of a billion dollars over 17 years and it had oh, wow. nothing to do with their product or offering or or anything else but uh it attracted people out and it completely elevated the brand's visibility and likability that is indeed interesting so does it mean that, uh, or actually it means that you don't need to, let's say, have a program that is close to the product or the service that you're offering? Well, it, yes, it does. It, it, that's what it means. It, you, you can do it even if you don't have a close link physically, but it doesn't mean you don't have to establish that link. Now, Avon did it through this incredible uh, Walk for Breast Cancer promotion and it was branded Avon, and it was uh, around breast cancer. And so uh, they made that link. You still have to make that link. Uh, it can't be uh, so separate from your brand that nobody knows it was yours. So the closer it is to your brand or your product or your offering, the better it works. But even... Yes. Yeah, because it, it allows you to make that link easier. And it also allows you to maintain the authenticity of your connection with the, uh, with the program. And authenticity is really important. You don't want people thinking this is phony, this is just selling. Uh, you want them to think, to, they, you want them to see your passion. And it has to be, and how do you get that authenticity? Because that sounds to me key. I mean, if you don't have authenticity, people will see through it. Uh, you know, the, the journalists will start digging, uh, customers start, will start getting critical. Uh, I think this authenticity, as you rightly mentioned, is key. How do it you is. get this? Or Well, one way you get it is making a long-term commitment. And when, okay. when you see this is the seventh, eighth year, the 20th year, the 25th year, they're, they're saying, this is something more than selling. These people are really into this. Another way you can do it is to is to become an expert in the you know in the science of it or whatever it is or or the uh, the operational complexity or so they see that you're just not throwing money at something 
or just have looking for publicity shots, but you are really understanding the the problem or issue. And and your program is a lot of credibility because it response it's it's responsive to those problems because of your knowledge and expertise and and data analysis. So uh, to sum up, it has to be authentic. It has to be as close as possible to uh, the product or offering that, that you can, although this is not necessarily, it, you can do. It has to be a commitment over time for it, and you have to build an expertise in that. Am I summing it up uh, rightly? Yeah, and then of course it's not a zero one thing, but those are the things that would, would help you um, be more effective. And does this even work for, let's say, um, bad boys like Goldman Sachs that everybody gets irritated by when they see it and they think these guys are here to make money? Can Goldman yeah, that's Sachs a, That's a really good point. One of the reasons we do this is to sort of change the conversation. And instead of uh, talking about the, the bad press topics yes. that Goldman gets or Walmart got uh, before them, you, you create a program that, that changes the conversation, that repositions you a little bit, and uh, it allows you to think about something other than that. So in Goldman created about 10, 12 years ago, a uh, program called 10,000 Women, and they were gonna really influence the, the ability of these 10,000 women to, to advance, to uh, prosper, to be entrepreneurs, and, and to become educated in finance and accounting. And uh, it was an amazing, it was, still is, an amazing program. They've now reached 10,000 women and they're gonna go for 10,000 more. And then they developed the uh, 10,000 black women just in the last couple of years as a response to Black Lives Matter. And they're going into Africa and other places and they're changing the lives of black women with a, education program and a, and a microfinance program and, a, and so on. And so 10,000, and they are a 10,000 small business program too. So these programs have, uh, you, you know, I think they made a difference for Goldman. It's, you know, of course, Goldman's pretty huge and they've got a lot of established uh, ways to connect with people, but, but these things have made a difference and it's made a difference internally at Goldman. That's I mean, the employees are realize that that there is a another side to Goldman. That's in, uh, that's interesting. You also mentioned Barclays. Now, Barclays, the digital eagle story that you have, I found really fascinating because it really puts a direct link between the programs that they have and what it did to the brand. Yes. Can you say something more about about that program? Yeah, in in two thousand and twelve because of the lingering effect of the financial collapse in 2008 or 9, Barclays was the least trusted brand in the least trusted industry in the yes. UK. Yeah. And uh, I mean, that's, that's quite a title. And, uh, and during a two-year period, they did everything they could. I mean, they said, we've got new programs. We don't, you know, we're not the bad guy anymore. And it didn't work. Nothing worked. And then they decided they're going to reformulate their, their promise or their uh, purpose and to one that they were going to help other people achieve their financial goals. 
and they had their employees go out and develop programs that were uh, compatible with that. They developed 40 programs. They packaged a couple of these programs into something called the Digital Eagles. And uh, it was a group of 17 employees that's grown to 17,000 now. 17 employees oh, wow. that went out to try to help people thrive in the digital age, especially elderly people or kids. And they would teach them how to deal with the digital complexities of things and, uh, and realize their opportunities. And, uh, and then they created some stories. You know, I, I talk about one story about an injured soccer player that started playing walking soccer where there's six mm. on the side and you just walk. And um, <laughs> he got help to build a website to, to nationalize this activity. And you could see it was such a, an emotional story. You got to know him and his wife and, and what this meant to him. Is, and even his grandchildren you got to know. And you got to see his buddies engage in this thing which they loved as, a, as younger people. And then they, they put out a video describing a couple of these, uh, these stories. And their numbers just shot up. The trust went up in a huge amount, something like five times more than it had done under their old oh, wow. uh, system. And, and uh, consideration went way up. And uh, uh, sort of all the numbers went up. It was, it was really dramatic. So those are good numbers. Those are good numbers. And that proves that if the program is conducted well, and with authenticity, and that you build a set of expertise over time that you keep on building it, in a sense, you become partly an NGO, and you have this yeah. expertise that an NGO would have. Yeah, what I think the Barclay story illustrates is, uh, pretty graphically, is that uh, one of the advantages of doing this for your business is that it gives you a, a way to deal with very bad press. But it has to be authentic. I mean, oh, there's yes. a little bit, I mean, there, there, there is a bit of a, a paradox in, in, in what you say here, because it has to be authentic, but if you do it just to get, to get the bad press away, then it loses its authenticity. Exactly. That's, we have to, it's a very fine line to, to run it. And, and as I said, some of the ways you can deal with that is having long-term commitments and uh, having really credible programs and uh, making sure you take an interest in the problem beyond just your social program, that you, you do other things that indicate that you are a thought leader, maybe even, or if not a thought leader, at least a, a place that has captured thought leadership. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. And I guess you also have to balance this with making a profit. I mean, uh, you can argue that, let's say, the main purpose of a company is to make profits. That's right. I was reading an article yesterday that that you can't be be so sort of uh, stubborn and say that uh, we have these uh, the goal of uh, being environmentally conscious as possible or or, or being responsive to things like uh, homelessness or something, and that is the dominant criteria for all we do. Because you, you have to stay in business. And you not only have to stay in business, you have to be profitable. Otherwise, you lose your capacity to help. So there has to be a time where you, you, where you delay something you would like to do. 
or there might be a time in which you don't do it at all. But if you look at the big picture, the long-term picture, that you're, it's, that decision still helps your ability to uh, engage in, in uh, societal impact programs. That makes all the sense in the world. And uh, especially when we have this latest discussion that we all have been following on the Helmans and Unilever, that uh, as it was later called, uh, uh, the icing on the cake. Well, perhaps it's not, in, uh, perhaps a bit more than the icing on the cake. It needs to be authentic and long-term, but it needs to be in balance with the profit. And the goal of companies is to stay in business and a bit more than that to thrive. Yeah. So we will also discuss a little bit about the ACA model. Now, if you, let's say, can you explain a little bit more about the ACA model? As, as mentioned, this is the, probably the most well-known brand equity model out there. Can you explain a little bit more of, uh, of what works? I'm not sure all our listeners know. In the early books, I called it the brand identity model. And uh, I changed that to the brand vision model because identity didn't seem to have a lot of energy. But the, there's three key sort of criteria that I use to evaluate brand models. And uh, when I developed this in the 80s, early 90s, the uh, advertising agencies were running the brands. And they were looking for a one-word phrase that would be able to drive their advertising campaign. And uh, I just thought that was atrocious because <laughs> brands are more than a, a, a three-word phrase. Uh, and certainly that's true with B2B brands, service brands, but also for of uh, you know packaged goods brands. So my first principle was that a brand is multidimensional, it's eight or twelve dimensions. Okay. And uh, and it's not a three-word phrase. My second thing was that you don't have pre-specified dimensions. These agencies and others would have these big models, they would have seven boxes. You know, the one box would be personality, one box would be attributes, another box would be benefits. And you're supposed to write in each box where your brand stood. And I, uh, I, I said, no, you, you, you uh, select the dimensions for your context and for your brand and for your audience. Some dimensions will work in, in your case, but not in, in others. So anyway, that's the second one. There's no, it's okay, not a okay. fill in the box model. You create your own boxes. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is you prioritize. So if you have eight or 12 things, you have some that are more important than others, three or four we'll call the core, and uh, the rest we call extended. That's the essence of the model. And beyond that, there's a lot of variance and, and uh, a lot of different labels you can put on them. Uh, some people use uh, pillars and... Uh, and or elements or principles but it, it but anyway if those three principles are followed i'm okay with it so um, if you would build your brand model today with all the changes happening would you change anything on your model yeah the model has evolved over time in some kind of important ways one is that uh i started out with uh awareness and image and, and brand loyalty, and I still have those, but uh, the awareness is sort of changed because right? I've done a lot of work with relevance. And so uh, I really talk about relevance instead of awareness now, and relevance is really visibility and credibility. 
It means okay. you're worth considering. So it's a little more than just visibility. It also involves credibility. So that would be a, a change. That's important. That's important. So because um, usually awareness gets a lot of, let's say, um, uh, I would say consideration. But as let's say, this consideration, that's important as well. Yeah. The reason you want awareness is so you can be considered, and uh, the, one of the reasons. Although it, you also like awareness because it has a lot of image implications. If you're aware of it, you usually assume that it must be pretty good. Otherwise, why am I aware of it? So uh, if you get into brand relevance, as I did, I wrote a book on brand relevance, and and that is a, a visibility and a credibility. So uh, I, I often talk about that instead of brand awareness. And I also talked about, uh, when, I, when I introduced my model, it, it was different than the others of the day because my model included uh, brand loyalty, whereas theirs was only image and awareness. And it, when it's image and awareness, the advertising can handle it. You know, it can be a yeah. tactical thing. But when you put in, um, Brand loyalty, everything changes. Now you're really uh, talking about being involved in all the aspects of the offering, in particular, the customer experience. And uh, so you're building up the, uh, the loyalty, and that's really where most of the asset value comes from the brand. That's fascinating. That's, you know, that's really good to incorporate all these different aspects into, into one model. Another thing that you've actually been very well known in, in the branding is how to grow brands. Now, I have a wonderful quote from you, which I would love to read to you on, uh, on brand growth, because I think that's very typified about, about brand growth. Uh, you mentioned that uh, I've heard you say it literally. So most people compete in a, in a, in a mind brand is better than your brand marketing. And that very rarely leads to real growth. And, and if you want to get real growth, you need to do this by formulating and owning a subcategory that will change the game. This is a fascinating insight. Can you explain a bit more on this? Well, I, I was looking uh, at uh, brand data in Japan and beer brands. I've uh, spent a lot of time in Japan. And anyway, I got a hold of beer data and I looked at it over 35 years and the market share trajectory only changed four times. And each time mm. there was a new subcategory uh, formed and that, was ex that explained the change. When it was Asahi Superdry was one, for example. And then uh, I started looking at other categories and in every one I found the same thing. When there was a surge of growth, it was it was because of a new new entirely subcategory. It happened in computers and in water and airplanes and on and on. So I I was really stunned. The only way to grow is to really create innovative disruptive innovation that is a game changer. So then I started studying that, and I realized that all these, there was hundreds of books on, the, on disruptive innovation. And if you look at these books, I looked at dozens of them. I looked at the leading books, leading authors, and they never mentioned branding. Huh. Yeah, you look under the index, there's nothing under B for branding. And uh, it was as if that this, this process can just happen. 
Yeah. And and I came to believe that first of all, if you're going to be successful, you really need to become the exemplar brand. The brand that stands for the subcategory. You don't have to be the pioneer to do that either, but in most cases it's not the pioneer. But you have to be the exemplar. Second, you have to use that status to position the subcategory. Not the brand, the whole subcategory. You have to be in charge of the subcategory. So it wins today. And the third thing you have to do is scale. You have to scale as fast as you can. No more high prices at the beginning to recapture costs. You've got to scale. And the fourth thing you have to do is you have to build barriers. You build barriers by the customer base. You build barriers by your positioning strategy. But you also build barriers by branding the innovations, the must-haves. You do it by having ongoing innovation, so you're a moving target. But all four of these things is, are really jobs that branding needs to be involved with. Yeah, so, so, so let's repeat them with what you need to be incredibly fast. You have to be the, you have to be the exemplar barriers. brand. You have to position the subcategory. You have to scale the subcategory. And you have to build barriers around the subcategory. Now, that's a good way to end. I think this is all what we can learn from, from growing our brands fast. We have to get into subcategory or build a subcategory and own it. Super Dave, we are nearing the end of our conversation. It was a real honor and a pleasure to have you in our conversation. And I must say, I learned a lot. Even after reading all those books a long time ago, I had to reread, get into it, and I enjoyed it thoroughly, learning more of your ideas, learning more of the things that you're working with. Okay, and one thing we, we didn't mention, I'll just say in closing, is that one of the elements of the digital age is the very difficult way to, to break into the conversation and be heard and to get remembered. And, and so I advocate stories. And I wrote a book called Creating Signature Stories that, uh, that gives you a way out of that dilemma. So helping build stories to make sure that you get breakthrough through the clutter that the digital age has produced. Yep. That indeed is a super way to, uh, to close. So thank you, Dave. As mentioned, it was an honor and a pleasure. And I'm sure that we'll be uh, in touch a bit more. Have a great day. And okay, I'll uh, put these books in there and wait for the next book to uh, add it to the list. Okay, thank you. Take care. And thank you, Dave, for joining us today and sharing your valuable insights. Found our discussion fascinating indeed, especially your vision and research on societal branding and signature stories. Just to recap for our listeners, to make these signature stories work, they need to be close to the products and services the company sells. It needs to be championed from the inside, authentic, and have a strong commitment over time. I hope, dear listeners, that you found these insights inspiring as well. And if so, please share our Branding Over Wine podcast with friends and colleagues. And when you have a moment, we'd love to get your reviews or ratings. Hope to have you all listening in on our next podcast. And thank you all for tuning in.